She saw her son cut down by a machete. She was kidnapped away from her husband and didn't see him for months. Her captors forced her to marry one of them and she ended up having a baby with that man. Finally, she escaped and was reunited with her husband and eventually they rescued her daughter from captivity as well. When Sarah and I were talking about this passage yesterday, she reminded me of a story she read in a book published by Voice of the Martyrs. And as I thought about that story that I just laid out for you, I felt sort of a sinky feeling in the the pit of my stomach. What would I do if my family was captured by men who hated Jesus? Would I convert to whatever their religion was to try to save myself or other people from being killed or beaten or persecuted? Could I, if there was an after, forgive them after for what they might have done to my family and others like us? In our nominally Christian society here in the United States, I think those of us at least that grew up in church expect to be the heroes of the story. We assume that people will like us. We anticipate that things will go well, more or less. But we look at the New Testament, we see that Peter was in prison and according to church history, also crucified like Jesus. Paul was killed, again from church history, probably in the arena. Stephen, according to Acts, was stoned. These were not exceptions, but the normal responses of a pagan world to Christianity. I'm not saying that every Christian is going to be martyred for the name of Christ, but there are those who are being persecuted and martyred, put to death because they follow Jesus even right now. And even for those of us who aren't facing that sort of intense persecution, we should not be surprised if the world hates us. John 15:18 says, Jesus said, if the world hates you, You know that it has hated me before it hated you. How should we respond to persecution? I think we expect to go from a moment of never thinking about it to the moment of being asked the question, are you willing to die for the name of Jesus and saying confidently yes without any hesitation. But think about Peter's own experience. Jesus tells his disciples, you're all going to fall away. Peter says, even if everybody else falls away, I will never fall away. Jesus says, Peter, before the night's done, you're going to deny me three times. Peter says, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. Peter denies Jesus. He's ashamed of Jesus. He even curses and swears in his denial that he has never met him. He doesn't know him at all. I think, like Peter, in pride we can think that when a moment of difficulty, suffering, persecution comes, we're just going to automatically be ready. But the reality is you and I have to get ready for that moment long before that moment comes. The reality is we're not going to face suffering as Christians if we're just like everyone around us. If we are constantly wasting our lives away on the idle entertainment of our world, movies and TV shows, celebrity gossip and comparisons to other people on social media, video games and various other empty pursuits, 
they're not going to persecute us because we're doing all the things that they do for fun and for entertainment and in their free time. If we worship the gods of our culture, chasing constantly after buying and selling things like the people at Vanity Fair and Pilgrim's Progress, we're not going to face hardship because we are an integral part of our consumeristic culture. If we are afraid to name Jesus and so we never speak of him, life is probably going to go pretty easy for us for the most part. But God has not called us to waste our lives or worship the gods of our society or be silent about the Savior that we claim to follow. Instead, Peter, out of his, both his own failure and the forgiveness that Jesus extended to him, calls us to prepare to suffer for Jesus by living for him now. Prepare to suffer for Jesus by living for him now. Prepare to suffer for Jesus in the way that you think about suffering. First of all, don't be surprised by persecution. We see this in verse 12. Persecution can be severe. Peter describes it here as a fiery ordeal. Some people have seen in here a little reference to something like being burned at the stake. And that does happen, has happened throughout the history of the church, but it doesn't necessarily have to be anything more than the difficulty that they were already facing in chapter 1 where it says, your faith being tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor. Persecution does come to test faith. You're, you've been distressed by various trials, chapter 1 and verse 6, so that the proof of your faith, more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter says here, it comes upon you for your testing. We talked about this in the Sunday school hour, that God disciplines his people. God brings us to moments of, will you follow me? And those moments of testing are not meant to destroy us. They are meant to purge away the things that distract us and drag us away from God. You and I often find ourselves either being tempted and giving in to temptation or being distracted and kept from things that are really important. And in moments of intense testing, all of those things just sort of opens our eyes and we realize those things don't really matter. Nobody cares when they're being beaten because they follow Jesus about what your score was in Fruit Ninja or Fortnite or whatever other game you can think of. Nobody cares about what things you've accumulated and hung on shelves in your house or tool racks in your garage or any of those kinds of things. Nobody cares how many people liked something that you posted online or how well-recognized you are, how popular you were. Those things don't matter in the context of a moment of suffering. And so that suffering comes to test faith and to say what is really important. And at the very core of it, what is really important 
is that you have a relationship with God. You know that if you died in that moment, you would be with God for all of eternity. You have spent your life calling other people to a relationship with God so that they have that opportunity as well, so that like Paul, like Peter, like others, you can stand before God and say, I have no need to be ashamed because I have done worthwhile things with my life. Now, is there a time and a place for relaxing and spending time with family and all those sorts of things? Sure. But so much of our time is spent chasing after things that aren't really important. We accumulate too much stuff, and so we spend all our time shuffling it around. We sort of live in these worlds that aren't real, and we sometimes miss what's happening with even those that we love right around us. We don't spend enough time in prayer and in considering what the Scripture says and all those sorts of things. So we come to those moments of difficulty and we say, I'm not ready, and then we try to scramble to get ready, and sometimes there's just no time. If we shouldn't be surprised by difficulty as though it were some strange thing, if we're going to expect it, if we need to be ready for it, When do we get ready for it? The answer is right now. So don't be surprised by persecution. Uh, um, Peter talked before about this idea of being of sound judgment and being sober in chapter 4 and verse 7. We looked at that last week. And Paul talked about it in 1 Thessalonians 5, this idea of being sober and alert, not drunk and asleep. It is really easy for us as believers who would say, yeah, I'm not going to be passed out drunk partying, but we're still kind of stumbling through life kind of blissfully unaware of the realities of things that are really important. And we get surprised when someone says something that reminds us that the world is no friend to those who love God. And the reason that we get surprised in those moments is because we haven't been getting ready for it right now and we don't expect it and it catches us off guard and we shouldn't be caught off guard because we should be on our guard. We should be ready for those moments. But if we are not spending time in prayer and meditating on what God has said and strengthening one another for the things that we're going to face, we're not going to be ready. Not only are we to think about suffering in a way that it's not a shock to us. We're supposed to think about it as an opportunity for rejoicing. Verse 13, rejoice that you share in Christ's sufferings. To the degree you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. Peter and the other apostles in the book of Acts get beaten for preaching Jesus, and they rejoice that they have the opportunity to suffer for the name of Christ. You and I have two problems. One is that we think of suffering primarily in terms of physical health because that's, for the most part, all that we've experienced in the United States. And I'm not saying that those aren't real trials. I'm saying those aren't specifically the sufferings of Christ. Should we have a right response when we're sick, when life is hard, when we face death due to disease and difficulty and all of those sorts of things? Absolutely. 
But I think it's easy sometimes for us to think, I've gone through a great physical trial, so I know exactly what's going on here, and it's not a one-for-one. One. This has application to that, the same principles apply to that, but specifically what's being said here is the sufferings of Christ. Now, there's a degree to which Christ suffered in that there were times that he went hungry or didn't have a place to stay and all that. We see that when he calls disciples to follow after him. He says, the Son of Man has no place to, to lay his head and he goes hungry and all those sorts of things. Are you willing to follow after me in that sort of life? So there is a degree of experiencing just need in some way if you follow after Jesus. But the sufferings of Christ, really specifically that Peter focuses on, are he followed after God, he obeyed God, he laid down his life in obedience to God, and that was the suffering of Jesus that Peter has in mind throughout this book. So should we rejoice when we get a cold and we're kind of vaguely miserable for a couple of weeks? Yes. It's really easy to complain in those situations. We need to rejoice then. Should we rejoice when we get to eat food that we don't like and not complain like the people of Israel? Yes, we should rejoice in those situations too. But the rejoicing that Peter has in mind here is when you live in such a way that it shows that you know Jesus or when you talk to other people about Jesus and they reject you for it or they try to make your life miserable because of it, that's the really specific situation that Peter has in mind here. And he's saying, in that moment, rejoice. And in that moment, I think it's hard to rejoice because you say, I'm doing the thing I'm supposed to do. I'm talking to someone about God. I'm being honest in my work. I am not. There's no grounds for them to accuse me, but they're still accusing me. They're still mocking me. They're still rejecting me. I'm doing everything right. That goes back to the previous verse. Don't be surprised by it. And it goes to this verse, which is this. Think about it in this way. This is an opportunity for you to rejoice. Why? On the one hand, because if you suffer like Jesus, it shows you belong with Jesus. And also, because God is accomplishing something good in your life through that suffering, and things that draw us closer to God should always be an opportunity for rejoicing, no matter how difficult they might be. There's also a sense in which we are rejoicing now so that we can rejoice later. So that at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. There's a sense that Peter's holding out that if you and I don't rejoice right now, then we may not really know God, or at the very least, we're not prepared to rejoice when Jesus Christ is revealed. There's throughout Peter and Paul's writings, the rest of the gospel, or the New Testament authors, there's this idea of on that day, the day of Jesus coming back. Are you ready for that day? What's going to happen on that day? All those sorts of things. If we're not rejoicing now, we're not going to be in practice to rejoice then. If we're not rejoicing now, it may be because when that day comes, we won't be part of those who rejoice. And so it's a, a, an important thing that we rejoice now so that we can rejoice later. Another way that we need to think about this suffering is to realize that suffering is a privilege and not a burden. It's a privilege and not a burden. It says in verse 14, if you're reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed. If you're mocked as, oh, you're a Christian, 
You're one of those Jesus people. You're a follower in the book of Acts of the way. These were terms of derision, of mocking, of making fun of people. Oh, you're one of those people. You're a little Jesus. Verse 14 says, If you're reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. You're blessed because if you really know him, Acts 4.12 says there's no other name that brings salvation. The end of this verse says that you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. So if you are following after Jesus and you're pointing to people to Jesus and you're mocked and reviled because of the name of Jesus, it's a sign that God is with you. If there is no being reviled, if there's no distinctness, if there's no persecution, there's not going to be the blessing of seeing God's hand in it. There's not going to be this awareness and confirmation that you belong to God that verse 14 holds out. I think Peter is calling them to remember the end result. What's the end result of this difficulty, this trial, this suffering? Though you have not seen him, chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, you love him, and though you do not see him now but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Don't be surprised by it. Rejoice in it because you remember where it's headed. If you name the name of Christ and you stay true to the name of Christ, the end result is that you are with Christ and that makes it all worth it. Prepare to suffer for Jesus in the way that you think about suffering. Prepare to suffer for Jesus in the way that you feel about suffering. Look at verses 15 through 18. Don't do evil. Where do I say don't do evil? Well, make sure none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. If you do evil, you deserve punishment. Think about the idea of being a murderer. We see this all the way back in the very beginning of the Bible, the book of Genesis. Cain kills Abel. We see this in Peter or uh, Stephen's sermon where he rebukes the religious leaders and he says, you murdered the prince of life. God uh, lays out in the Old Testament that if someone takes man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. There is life for a life. Murder deserves punishment. Stealing deserves punishment. Think about the thief who's on the cross with Jesus. Nobody questions whether the thief was supposed to be there because he had stolen, he had broken the law, he deserved punishment. He says, more generally, don't suffer as an evildoer. This goes back to chapter 2, verses 12 and 14, where he says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so in the thing they slander you as evildoers. In chapter 2, verse 12, he says, they're going to accuse you of being an evildoer. Don't live in a way that gives them any grounds for saying it and it being true. Who deserves punishment? Chapter 2, verse 14, governors sent by the king for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. 
Peter says, don't suffer as a murderer or thief or an evildoer. And then he throws in a troublesome meddler. We're like, what does that have to do? That's not that big of a deal. Yeah, killing someone, stealing things, generally doing evil, that's that obviously that deserves punishment. But being a busybody, a gossip, a nosy person, that's not that big of a deal. I think it's really easy for us in the church to think that some sins are a big deal and other sins are not a big deal. Where do we need to watch out for this? I think we need to watch out for it in the way that we share prayer requests. If we are praying for people, we say, here's what's going on, and I'm praying for this person. Sometimes we don't need, most of the time, we don't need to give all the details. Uh, sometimes we don't need to share the situation at all. We just need to talk to someone and pray for them in private. Um, to the extent that someone willingly volunteers, here's what's going on, I think there's a, a sense of a responsibility not to go tell 50 other people about it, um, particularly if it's something very personal. Now, there's a balance here, right? So, the, maybe the problem that we had in the church 50 years ago was, we're going to act like nobody ever does sin, so we won't talk about anything, except behind their back. And the problem that we have today in society and therefore in the church is, well, if you're going to be genuine, you just have to tell everybody everything that ever pops into your head or, or everything you've ever done wrong or all that sort of thing, as though we can get like it's sort of this public confessional that everybody will just be like, oh, it's okay. And that can quickly turn to a sense of pride as well too, right? Because, oh, well, you did this. Well, it's not that bad. And we just sort of feel good about ourselves. And so that's sometimes why we do it. So there's a biblical balance between acting like we never sin and telling everybody every sin, and that's where the issue of gossip comes in. Hey, did you hear about this thing this person said? Let's talk about it for a while. We don't want to help them. We don't want to fix the problem. We don't want to pray for them. We just want to talk about it because it's fun to talk about stuff that's kind of scandalous. Or we come over here and nobody knows about something. We'd be like, hey, I have news that you don't know. And then it's pride because we say, now I get to sort of say, here's what's going on. And Peter says, to the extent that you are aware of the difficulties and the problems of people in the church, it is not your job to go around telling everyone about it in the guise of spirituality because that's a sign of pride and of a hard attitude that both deserves the consequences that come upon you and doesn't please God. So don't suffer because, you know, you told everybody what was going on with someone and now that person doesn't like you. And you say, oh, how, how could this be happening to me? This person is not my friend anymore. And Peter says, you deserve what happened. You did something wrong. There's other sins like that that we think aren't a big deal that if we do them are going to bring us bad consequences. And if those bad consequences happen, the first thing we should say is, did I do something bad? And Peter says, if you did, you deserved it. So deal with it with God and with other people and move on. That's not the sort of suffering I'm talking about. He says, if though you suffer as a Christian, verse 16, I would put it this way, hold your head up high. Sometimes we say, I want to tell you about Jesus. The person's like, no. They're like, okay. Okay. 
There is no shame in telling someone about Jesus or living as a Christian and getting mocked for it because that's what happened to Jesus and that is a normal thing and it's what we should expect and we shouldn't be ashamed of it. So, here's again where Peter's own experience comes in. Peter's standing by the fire and they're like, hey, you know that guy that just went in? Peter's like, no. Why did Peter say no? He just spent three and a half years with Jesus. Why does he say no? Why does he make such a huge deal about wanting to distance himself from Jesus? They're like, hey, you talk like him. Hey, you look like him. Hey, you were with him. And he's like, no. Why do we do that? Because we're afraid of people, because we're worried about what they're going to think of us, because we don't really love God the way that we should. If you say, I know Jesus and I belong to him, and someone says, well, that's stupid, you don't need to be ashamed of that. The other attitude or feeling or, or approach that we need to have to this issue of suffering is to remember that your life isn't free from hardship just because you claim Jesus. We see this in verses 17 and 18. God's judgment begins at home, verse 17. It's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. We're talking about this again in Sunday school. Uh, God as a father disciplines those whom he loves. He uses testing to purify our faith. If God is going to evaluate his people, we kind of want God to deal with all of the, we think of the really bad people out there, right? And we want to say, well, go easy on us because we're, we're in. And Peter says it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. There's other passages that say, if we judge ourselves rightly, God doesn't have to judge us. So, not in every case. But there is, I think, a sense in which if you are, if you are wholeheartedly devoted to God, not distracted by the things of the world, not enslaved to temptation and sin, God doesn't have to discipline you as much as someone who there's a lot of those things that have to be purged out of their life. Now, we have to be careful with this, right? Because again, there is no guarantee that if you are doing everything right from a human perspective, life will always be easy. So there's a balance here. But Peter's just acknowledging this reality. Just because you belong to God doesn't mean your life will always be easy. Judgment will begin with the household of God. If it begins with us first, what's the outcome for those who don't obey the gospel of God? Clearly, the outcome for them is destruction. The outcome for many of God's people is going to be what it talks about in Jude, that they're snatched from the fire and there's like the smell of smoke still on their clothes as they get pulled out of the fire. Or uh, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, that there are those who will be saved, yet so as by fire they're saved, but so much of their life was spent in worthless things that all they, 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 get, in, they get to heaven and it's basically just the clothes on their back and they have nothing else to offer. Peter, I think, is calling us to recognize that those who don't obey the gospel, he's already said, are going to face God's judgment that leads to destruction. And as God's people, just because we belong to him and have a relationship with him and have forgiveness of our sins doesn't mean that we're sort of 
insulated from this process of God purifying our faith and purging what is worthless and evil out of us. Verse 18, if we're saved only through difficulty, the lost have no chance at all. Some people see here a quote from Proverbs. Uh, It's hard to know entirely what, what he's referencing. If he's referencing the passage in Proverbs, he's talking about the idea of reward. What's the reward for the unrighteous? It's God's judgment. What's the reward for the righteous? It is salvation. Obviously, we don't earn it. It's on the basis of what Jesus has done. But he's showing this contrast. If you are barely saved only by God's mercy, those who don't have God's mercy have no chance at all. So this is a, a sobering sort of thing. So prepare to suffer for Jesus in the way you think about suffering, in the way that you feel about suffering, and in the way that you live for him now. Verse 19, we're supposed to entrust your soul to God despite your suffering. If you are suffering in this moment... It is according to God's will. Or rather, it says those who suffer according to the will of God can trust God. If you're suffering because you are faithfully following after God, then that is according to God's will, and you can trust God that he hasn't forgotten you in the midst of it. He is faithful, and he is the creator. He made you... He has the power to control the circumstances of the world. He's put you in the circumstances that you're in now. And he is faithful. He hasn't forgotten about you, even though it may feel like what you're going through is lasting a long time. You say, well, I don't feel like I'm suffering at the moment. Practice trusting in God as your faithful creator for when that moment comes. If you and I don't practice trusting God in everyday life, we're certainly not going to be in good practice to trust God when really hard moments come. If the only time you pray is when someone is watching, if you pray like twice a month, and then some really hard trial comes, you're not going to know how to talk to God. If your acquaintance with God's Word and the amount of time that you think about it is five minutes a day, and a couple of times a week at church, and then you have a moment of intense difficulty, you're like, what do I do? You're not going to be familiar enough with what God has said to know what God is like and what he wants his people to be like to be ready for that circumstance. So you and I need to practice entrusting our souls to God right now, believing that what he has said is true, believing that he is a good God, a faithful God, one who is working out his purpose in the world and in our lives. We need to keep doing right before God, even in the face of suffering. You might be tempted to stop doing good because life is hard. He says, entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. If you really belong to God, you need to keep doing what is right despite the cost. Think about Peter and the disciples. They're preaching the gospel. They get brought before the religious leaders. They say, don't do this anymore. There's a strong temptation in a moment like that to say this is hard and it's hard because I'm doing what is right. I'm going to stop doing what is right and then it will be easy. And Peter says, even in that moment of suffering, entrust yourself to God and keep doing what is right. And this goes back to Jesus' own example when he says in um, 
Chapter 2, verse 23. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges rightly. And he bore our sins in his body on the cross so we might die to sin and live to righteousness. If Jesus had gotten to the moment of being beaten and accused of blaspheming, all those sorts of things, and he said, you know what, it's not worth it. Or if even earlier before that he said, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, you know what, it's not worth it. I know Judas is coming, I'm going to go somewhere else. Or if before he ever started his ministry, he knew that the ministry was going to be hard, he says, it's not going to be worth it, I'm not going to go through all this. You and I would have no salvation and no example to follow, but he entrusted his soul to God through his ministry, through prayer repeatedly, and communion with God, in moments like the Garden of Gethsemane, again, spending time in prayer while the disciples were asleep and and not really invested in what was going on. And then even on the cross, he cries out to God the Father and entrusts his soul to God. That's the pattern that we're called to follow. And we get ready for that right now so when the moment comes, we actually do it. To my knowledge, you and I have never experienced what the woman I mentioned at the beginning went through. To see your child killed by those who hate Jesus, to wrestle with how to follow Jesus. Do I die for him? What if I deny him? How far can I go in accommodating what they're saying to preserve myself? You and I haven't really had to face that kind of thing. You may not have even been mocked in any significant way for following after Jesus. Let me ask you this. If not, why not? We have to be careful here because it is possible for us to have a kind of self-righteousness that people find despicable and invites a mocking, right? So, this sort of attitude that I am better than other people because I am a Christian that comes across in a variety of ways, it's possible for us to have that and that is going to get mocked or a kind of hypocrisy that says, oh, I love God, And then they say, but didn't I just see you doing the exact same things that I do two days ago? So hypocrisy and self-righteousness, those are kind of like what Peter says, if you suffer as a murderer, an evildoer, or a thief, you deserve it, right? We're not talking about that. But if you have never, ever experienced someone saying something along the lines of, you follow Jesus and that's stupid. You follow Jesus, and I want nothing to do with you. You follow Jesus, and whatever. Sometimes we think that following God is, the the sum total of it, is I show up to church, and I avoid all the don'ts that are kind of like a really big deal to Christians. I'm not saying don't show up to church. We need to gather and be encouraged and do all the things God has called us to do, the one another ministries in the context of the assembly. And I'm not saying that there, I mean, there's clearly things that we're supposed to avoid, but our Christian life is more than outward ritual and avoiding all this list of rules that we think we're not supposed to do. It is supposed to be positively a relationship with God that is clear to the people around us. If you forgive people instead of condemning them, you're going to eventually get mocked for it. Because this is the thing that's fascinating about our society. We see 
they will dig up something that somebody did 20 years ago and destroy that person's career over it. Or they'll look at some wayward comment someone said when they didn't think a mic was on or whatever else, and they will try to pin somebody to the wall over that. There is no forgiveness in a culture that doesn't know Jesus because all we can do is drag other people down so that we look better. If you actually truly forgive people instead of condemning them, sooner or later somebody's going to mock you for it. What? You let that person take advantage of you, you're stupid. Why in the world would you do that? Well, I mean, Jesus said, if he asks you to go a mile, go two. If you are content in our society instead of consumeristic, you're eventually going to get mocked for it. You're happy driving that old thing around? You could have this. You're happy living in that house? You could have that. You're happy doing this thing? I mean, everybody has their thing. Uh, the thing I was talking to Sarah about was um, when it comes to biking, which I enjoy, people who have a $300 bike look down on people who have a $50 bike. People who have a $1,000 bike look down on people with a $300 bike. People with a $5,000 bike look down on people with a $1,000 bike. And everybody sort of smugly says, well, I'm better than you because I have more stuff. If we just say, I'm not going to be a part of that, I'm going to be content with what God has given me, sooner or later we're going to get mocked for that. Why, Why don't you want more? You don't, have your, you don't have enough ambition. You don't have any drive. You know, what, why? If you turn down a promotion because you think it will give you more opportunity to minister for God, people are going to not understand and they're potentially going to mock you for it. If you are content at home as a mom, taking care of your children, people are going to say, well, I mean, that's such a 1950s idea to be a homemaker and you should be out in the world making a name for yourself. More importantly than maybe these other things that I've said, if you ever take the opportunity to tell people there's only one way to God, you're going to get mocked for it. Because we live in a society that says there are many ways to God. And if you say there's only one way, People, that is something that they will not tolerate for all their talk of tolerance and acceptance and all those sorts of things. Say, this is the only way to God. Well, you're a hateful bigot. All I said was, there is Jesus is the only way. Will you want me to die? That is the, the response of a culture when they hear one way to God, their heart condemns them, their conscience convicts them, they remember some long ago forgotten thing they heard as a child, and they cannot accept it because to say yes to that is to undo the entire course of their life up to that point. If you are not clear about who Jesus is and our relationship with him, sooner or later we're going to get mocked for it. Life is going to be hard. So here's what I would say. Until that happens, prepare for that moment. What does Peter say about suffering? What is Jesus like? All of those sorts of things. I would also encourage you to do this. Pray for those who are persecuted in the church around the world right now. There are lots of different organizations that mm, keep track of these sorts of things. 
Voice of the Martyrs is just one of them. You can write to them or go on the website, sign up on their mailing list. They'll send you a map. They say, here's the sort of persecution that we're aware of that's happening in these parts of the world. Sometimes it's in surprising places like countries we don't think of as really hard places to follow Jesus, but they can be. The tool is not important, but the fact that we are aware that there are fellow Christians who are suffering because they follow Jesus right now, that's not something that happened under the Soviet Union and got done. That's not something that happened in China and got done. That's not something that happened 2,000 years ago and got done. That's something that's going on right now. We need to pray for those who are being persecuted right now that according to what Peter is saying here, they will suffer well for the name of Jesus. We need to prepare so that we are ready for that moment. And when that moment comes, we have to ask ourselves, what's my attitude? It's easy for it to be, why me, Lord? Peter says, don't be surprised. It's easy to have this this demeanor, this feeling of shame. Peter says, hold up your head. It is an honor and a privilege to suffer for the name of Jesus. It's a sign that you belong to him. What are you going to do in that moment? You might think it's not worth it to follow Jesus. I'm going to go do something else. Peter says, keep doing what is right. Or if we were to summarize in the way that people have sometimes summarized what's going on in the New Testament, Jesus' own experience and the experience of those who follow him is this. There is a cross before there's a crown. There is suffering before there's exaltation. There is difficulty before there is rest. Prepare to suffer for Jesus by living for him now. That's what Peter calls us to do. Let's pray. Father, some of the things that Peter is talking about here seem like quite distant from our everyday experience, and they may well be. If it's because we've been afraid to talk to people around us about you, give us courage. If it's because we've been distracted and dragged away and tangled in various sins, help us to cast aside the distractions and say no to the sin and temptation by your power. If it's just because we never even thought about the fact that the normal pattern is that people oppose Christianity because we've been in the United States and maybe we've been uh, attached to a kind of nominal Christianity. We don't have any friends who are unbelievers. We don't really go outside of a comfortable circle of experience. Show us what it looks like to get out of our comfort zone to really and truly follow after you. Father, if we have a sense that we are not ready or our kids are not ready or our spouses are not ready, people close to us around us are not ready for a moment of suffering, Prepare our hearts and our lives for that. Help us to be sober and diligent and aware of the pattern of Jesus that we ought to follow after. So 
so that our thoughts and our attitudes and our actions are all pleasing to you in those moments and even now. As we come now to this moment of remembering Jesus' sacrifice, help us to examine our hearts and say, do I know you, first of all? And if I know you, am I right with you and with those around me? Am I committed to following after you and the work that you're doing in the world through your church, banded together with fellow believers in a common cause, If we are, then help us to participate with joy. If we're not, then Lord, help us to pause and say, what is the next step that you want me to take, Lord? So that you would be honored in our remembering of Jesus and what he has done. So that we would go from here ready to follow you, not weak and sick, or dead because we have flippantly come before you, which Paul warned the Corinthians about. This is a sobering thing. It is a great privilege. It is an amazing opportunity to remember who you are and what you've done. Help us to receive it in the right way. In Christ's name, amen.